the song that we sang, Stand Up for, Stand Up for Jesus, the last chorus says, uh, To him who overcometh, a crown of life shall be. He, with the King of glory, shall reign eternally. The overcomers, to, to know how many times in Scripture the Lord would say to his people, Fear not, fear not, for I am with thee. How many times would Jesus say to the Israel, I will strengthen you, I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And yet, if you are an honest man, you live in, in, a, in a world that is, is going to be in warfare, and sometimes your strength wanes, and sometimes it's strong, and sometimes you overcome, and sometimes you don't. But this morning, I want to uh, give a particular word to you, is that God wants you strong. And God wants you to be an overcomer. And as we get into the passage today, we're going to see some things that, that if you understand that Christ Jesus is your security alone, that's sufficient. And that you can handle whatever battle that's out there. We're going to look at this today because the theme in this passage, as we get into the book of Acts, we're in the series, and, and the whole concept of, of uh, what we're wanting to understand is what's happening in the book of Acts is God is creating on earth a kingdom community where he is integrating the cosmos. Heaven and earth come together, and they're all around this King Jesus. And Jesus, once he has integrated heaven and earth, and he's blessing his people with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place, then he moves into the idea of incorporating all of us who are believers in Christ Jesus through baptism into an identity of his being his people. And as we're incorporated, we become the institutional, invisible, invincible church of God as we move into a world. But even so, this is the book of Ephesians. You, 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 you see where Christ has set up something uniquely in the church, and yet the battle goes on because the church is at different stages of maturity, and therefore there's a need for instruction, there's a need for imitation, and there's a need for involvement for the warfare, but all those are part of the process of growing up in Christ. And as we get into the book of Acts, we are here at the beginning of this opening picture, and, and I want you to get the flow, and there's something I want, I want you to... Uh, and I'm praying that God would open our eyes to see this, open my eyes to see it, is that God is doing something very, very unique in this book that if you are an American, you will not get it. If you read this just from straight uh, American glasses, you will miss the point. And so I want to go into, uh, as, we, as I'm talking about reading the Bible, as like we said in Sunday school, to think about, and we, as we did last week, to think about uh, how you meditate and how you critically read the Bible in order to align yourself with the Spirit of God. And so that's what we we're thinking about. Last week, I gave that poem, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. The names were what and where and why and how and when and who. 
And so when you go into this text, as we did last week, we're asking, meditating, and asking the Spirit of God to guide our imagination, to keep it anchored in Scripture, of course, but to get a fuller picture. So last week we looked at the, the healings and the signs and the wonders that were taking place. And Jerusalem with the, the apostles were, were different men at that point. The beggar had been healed. Ananias and Sapphira had been, had been taken out of the picture because there, there was a need for a purity, a, an authentic witness. And so as you come into uh, today, we're going to be looking in particular at some uh, pressures that they were under and how the apostles responded to leaders who were threatened by this movement. And so as we get into the idea, I want to begin by by drawing up a couple of things to get us into the flow. In Acts 2, Peter is standing up and he's not talking to the leaders. Peter is standing up and he says, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you and give heed to my words, men of Judea and Jerusalem. In Acts 22, 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Uh, Acts 3.12, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this healing of the beggar? Men of Israel, and as they were speaking to the people, what you see happening here is the apostles, those disciples of Christ who were trained and then sent, were now not communicating to the system They were not out to reform the system. They were a grassroots movement. And that grassroots movement was taking place because the Holy Spirit had been poured out at Pentecost on all mankind. Not on the system, but on all mankind. And so God is out gathering his people from from those that he had healed, the the cripples, the the lepers, the the lame, the weak, the, the... the unrighteous, the ungodly, that's where, where Christ would go to the marginalized. And the leaders began to see there's a movement. Hey, what's going on here? What's going on here? But Peter, they were, they were speaking to the people. And in Acts 4, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came. So now you've got a group of people who are watching this movement who are not part of this movement. Some respected the movement. Other people feared the movement. But now you've got the system who's supposedly the established leadership here in the society. And what it says is that they were provoked. It's a strong word. Uh, It's a strong word to become strongly irked and provoked to something to be annoyed or troubled. Have you ever had a man who's been troubled? Have you ever been under the leadership of a man who had insecurities or who was so power hungry? In Japan, I was with a man who was, uh, I just watched the power destroy him and destroy the workplace. If you are under a kind of... um, a man who's so self-centered, as you'll see, so narcissistic, as you'll see, who's so self-centered, that place becomes a crazy-making locale. It literally will drive people crazy. And the stress in the workplace under leaders who are threatened leaders, uh, 
Well, I want to look at that. But before I do, I want you to understand something that you may not understand. So I want to take your minds back 2,000 years ago to Jerusalem. So you with me? Uh, there, so I'm going to teach a little bit so you get an idea of what's going on and who these people were. Again, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Who were these people? Well, if you were there, Peter and James and the boys, as you were walking around Jerusalem, you would come across three types of communities. And they're not like our denominations, like you've got the Lutherans and the Catholics and the Baptists and the Pentecostals. And you have, it's not about the different sects or, or denominations. These are completely different groups. And there may be parallels today in our society. But the first one you know a lot about. You hear a lot about this group called the Pharisees. What do you know about the Pharisees? Go ahead and shout out. What do you know about the Pharisees? Tell me. Just shout. Follow the law? They were lawmakers? Yep. Others? Rules. These are the rule makers. The, these are the meat inspectors. This is the Torah keepers. These are the guys who are watching you to make sure you're doing it right. And yet, these were the leaders. No doubt you would see these are the righteous community leaders that you would vote for, for mayor, commissioner, senator, whatever, because they were moral people. They were righteous in their behavior, but the Pharisees were definitely one. There's another group called the Sadducees. Now, again, we're, we're here in America, and we don't have Sadducees. Uh, anything, what, what do you know about the Sadducees? <laughs> what? They studied, yeah. Teachers, okay. Okay. I'll explain it. This is a different kind of group, different than the Pharisees, uh, really different from the Pharisees, because this group, I'll explain in a minute, uh, were the antithesis of the Pharisees. And the third group was this group called the Essenes. Anybody hear about the Essenes? Okay, this is a brand new group. A lot of people may not be aware of this group, but they were very prominent because they, <clears throat> they were... Uh, 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 an anti-cultural group, as we'll look at in a minute, but these three groups of people. One, the Pharisees were your traditional folks. If you were looking at religious people, this would be the stereotype of Jerusalem. And the Pharisees would be the ones that would be in charge of the temple operations. They were traditional. They would go out to the people's homes. They would visit people. They would teach the Torah. They were engaged educators, but they were very, they were considered by the by the, the masses of being very, very popular. They liked the Pharisees. So they had a good relationship. Uh, but the second group was the Sadducees. And these were the uh, a bit uh, higher class because they were the educated. And these were the wealthy, some people say. They were not the ones to associate with the lower class. They were mainly concentrated in Jerusalem. Uh, depending on what source you read, uh, we don't know a whole lot about the Sadducees uh, because the only people that wrote about them was the historian Josephus, who had been part of the next group, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But he wrote about the Sadducees, and we have information from him, and the Bible. After, after that, their time is extinct, there's nothing written about the Sadducees. And therefore, 
uh, they were liberal in education, but the third group, the Essenes, said the Pharisees had missed the boat. The, the Sadducees had missed the boat. They were not godly. They were not really spiritual people. And the Essenes were the ones who thought, the Spirit of God, we need to seek God. And so they did. And these were the ascetic, the disciplined, the committed. They went out of Jerusalem. They left the world. They were separatists. And they would go out and they would start a community in the desert, which came to be known as the Qumran community. To join that community, you had to be out in the desert to deny yourself all the worldly pleasures, the pleasures of marriage, the pleasures of, of, of well, they were ascetics. And therefore, they were denying themselves, and they had to go through a period of two years of testing before they could even join officially the Qumran community. But they loved the community. And so when you talk about a community of being in one accord and sharing their, pro their property with everybody, this was the Essenes. They were a community. They, they wanted to do it right, and they were servants. But you think about these three groups, uh, and everything the Essenes would do in the morning, they would do as a group. They would greet the morning sun with morning prayers. Like many religions, there are systems and disciplines that you're supposed to do. And so it was a kind of a pressurized monastery out in the desert. But it was a, it was a group of people that were really there. They thought John the Baptist might have been part of that group. So you get that idea of there's a, there's a wild-eyed fanatic. These guys are really off the charts. So you've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Now, one thing I want to ask you guys. Uh, what do these three things have in common? Well, in one sense, they're somewhat like today. Uh, the Pharisees are like our modern social systems. There's a religious system, a religious system. The Sadducees are like our modern secularists. By that I mean... The Sadducees did not believe what the Pharisees believed because they believed in the resurrection, not the Sadducees. There is no eternal life. The Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. The Sadducees didn't believe in miracles. The Sadducees didn't believe in the Messiah. The Sadducees didn't believe in a lot of the things that would be traditionally under the umbrella of faith. These were the secular, you just have to be intelligent. You have to be, um, you can be spiritual, but it's, there's a liberalness to it. But this Pharisee stuff, we don't really hold to that. And so there's a tension between these two groups. And the Essenes were like, we want to be spiritual. And so the, exist, the, the experience and the, and the journey of being disciplined and being committed and, and having a, a sense of God's presence but also being reactionary. This was the first uh, holiness movement for the, the word Essenes means pious. Now you look at these three groups. What do they have in common? What could they have in common? What do you think? That's a good question for you to ponder. What do you think? What do these three groups have in common? They're all Jewish? Yep. They're all in a group? They all have leaders. But here's what I want you to see about these three groups. They don't need Jesus. They don't have the Holy Spirit. 
and they don't know the gospel. They're not living any of their life or their culture or their expression of, of, of religion in light of what Jesus Christ has came to do. And therefore, I want you to see that when Jesus, in this context, he's planting a church in this group of ragtag apostles and people who are healed and seeing signs and wonders. Jesus is on the move through the Spirit, introducing a kingdom community to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, and to the Essenes, and saying, there's more here. And this group... Uh, as you get into it, they, they had a council, and the council met together as they're going to meet these apostles doing these signs and wonders. And here's the apostle, and here's the, here's the, uh, the council. Interesting. Again, do a little digging. Annas was the high priest, the highest priest. Uh, and you go back in Luke 2, uh, 3, 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, what you don't know and wouldn't know until you do some study is Annas had a daughter. And guess who married the daughter? Caiaphas. He was his son-in-law. Now you've got an inner circle, a hierarchy, a controlling family that's going to say, this is what's going to go on. And these two were the high priests. Now, John was, John was called the president of the synagogue. He also was of the priesthood. And Alexander, the brother of Philo, again, a political powerhouse. And so this formed part of the, the council in Acts 5 that we'll get into. But there were also in this council the rulers, the elders, the scribes, the priest, the captain of the guard, and the Sadducees. Now, what you may not know or think about is what percentage of that council is Sadducee? They're against Christ. They're against the spiritual miracles. Uh, the percentage is quite high. Depending on who you read, and it's 30, 40, 50. There's a lot of people in power who are Sadducees. And Caiaphas and uh, Annas were over this group they're having real tension in-house. They couldn't agree with each other. And therefore, <clears throat> as you get into our passage, what you find that these men became threatened by the healing work of the apostles, by the movement of the Spirit, because the people were flocking to the church. And the Lord was adding daily the number of people who were coming to Christ because Christ was still resurrected. <clears throat> and what the resurrected what the resurrected Christ did in the New Testament, the Spirit of God continued to do in the book of Acts. And they thought, we got rid of the guy, but no, here he is. And by his name, they said, this man whom you crucified, Sadducees, this man whom you crucified, Pharisees, God established as Savior and Lord. And it's in his name this man is made well. Well, that didn't set well with the Sadducees. Wait, this, this is a miracle. I can't believe that. And they didn't believe that. And they were threatened by their presuppositions. God doesn't work that way. And therefore, you have some threatened, threatened leaders who you'll see in a minute are going to go after the apostles. This isn't new. If you're reading your Bible, you'll see how God's people respond to threatened leaders as what <clears throat> the apostles 
as they read the Old Testament, they got their clues from the Old Testament men. You know these three men. You know King Saul. You know King Nebuchadnezzar. And you know Herod the Great. King Saul, he was an insecure man. He had power, but he was very insecure. Same for Nebuchadnezzar. Though they had victory, they had power on the inside. There's a crack, an Achilles heel. heel. And uh, Herod the Great, the same thing, as we'll get into them. But with King Saul, do you remember the story when people were praising, praising the King Saul, and then there came this one little guy named David. 1 Samuel 18.7, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, David, wow, his 10,000. Well, how do you think that made Saul feel? Like he's being upstaged by this upstart, and all of a sudden, Saul becomes a jealous man. If you haven't read the story, you see a leader breaking down where he begins to attack his best men because he's threatened. Saul was jealous, and he couldn't handle the success of one of his underlings. And yet King David will always say he would never attack or, or threaten the king. So he always kept his heart right. King Nebuchadnezzar. He's a Chaldean king, king of the Babylonian empire that, that, that defeated the Egyptians. And as he was taking out the Egyptians, he would also be the one who would have a friend of his called Ashpenaz, if you're going back to vacation Bible school, uh, who would round up these men and he would take Daniel in the lion's den. King Nebuchadnezzar thought he did it all. And by his hand, he had conquered everything. He was a pagan god, a pagan uh, man who believed in pagan gods. And uh, he thought that he was the one who ended up being humbled by God to eat grass as a cow for seven years, as the story goes. But, but you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in a fellowship with Daniel, they would not be threatened by a threatened man. And therefore, they wouldn't follow the king's orders to eat the way he did. And they had an alternative way of handling a threatened leader. David was very wise in that. But, but when Nebuchadnezzar said, was reported, These men, O king, they have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men were brought before the king and later thrown into the fire. The point I want you to see is, when a leader is threatened, you'll see this with anger, with rage, and attacking. Because that's what insecure men do. They become violent. And when you have insecure men in positions of power, you have power used for purposes that are going to be self-protective. That's the same thing that happened with Herod the Great. Herod the Great couldn't take this movement any more than the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Because when Jesus was born, he was the one that slaughtered all the boys, the baby boys. He couldn't stand a rival. He was so insecure, he had to take out 
all of his enemies. And therefore, he was known to be a ruthless man. And the example there was John the Baptist, who lost his head because of this impulsive man, this insecure man, a threatened man. And so you have the same thing happening with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see the play coming out. When God does anything, like I said last week, when God's on the move, Satan will bring his people into conflict with God's people. And here they are, the Sadducees and Pharisees. Well, it's so different with Jesus. So different with Jesus. I want to submit to you that there is no man more secure in the universe that has ever existed than Jesus Christ. The most secure. He left glory. He left power. He left honor to become one of us. And walking on earth as a godly man, as a holy man, seeing everything that was falling apart and how ugly it was and sin that was destroying, Jesus walked in peace, in perfect peace, because his mind was stayed on the Father. Jesus never once felt fear. Now get that. Never once. Who do you say that I am? Are you the king of the Jews, Jesus? Jesus wasn't threatened. By Satan, by Agrippa, by anybody. Why? Because he had no reason to be afraid. He's the most secure man. And he said to the Pharisees, which of you, which of you accuses me of sin? You're accusing me? Can you imagine what Jesus felt when the finger came? You, you broke the law. You, this, you. Have you never read Jesus would come back? He was a very, very secure man. And as he stood up, he never once backed down. Jesus is the most, the strongest man. And that he wouldn't back down from any accusation. Because he was true. Paul said, in him there was no sin. Jesus knew no sin. He had no reason because Satan didn't have any hook inside of him to manipulate him, to to betray him, to, to blackmail him. Jesus was free. Imagine walking perfectly in obedience to the Father, knowing what was right knowing what was righteous, knowing that no man, on fallen man, sinful man, that I came to save, not, but Jesus was always right because he was always focused on the Father. And therefore, Jesus would talk to the disciples about these threats and leaders. And he says, you know, he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Jesus knew about threatened leaders. He talked about, he knew about the Romans. And their high officials exercise authority over you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And so Jesus introduces into this Pharisee, Sadducee, Essene community, uh, this leader-servant 
And that's why we call our team the servant leader team. Uh, we we want to understand and emulate this idea that Christ is secure. He's our focus. And therefore, we follow Christ. And that's what's happening. In the book of Acts, the Lord of glory is restoring the kingdom with a servant kind of leadership. And that's going to be part and parcel of the church. And the church is going to feel that, see that, and say, these men are secure. And when they saw the disciples that they were confident as having been with this Jesus. They were just like Jesus. They weren't afraid. They kept on doing the will of God. Why? Because Peter and John and others said, we are not men pleasers. Our focus is we want to obey God, not the social system, not the scholarly work, not the spiritual experience. We follow Jesus Christ. It's a relationship with the Lord of glory. And why did they do that? Because they knew that Christ was the one who died and served them. And therefore, he was worthy of everything that they had. And therefore, the angel said to Peter, go stand in the temple courts. And he said, until all the people about this new life, the NIV says. The New American Standard says, the whole message of this life and the words of this life, ESV, the full message of life. What the apostles were saying to the Pharisees, we don't want your rules. We want life. They didn't want to say to the Sadducees, you guys are messed up because we don't want this philosophy. We want life. And the Essenes were trying to have this spiritual experience, but they want life. And so that's what Peter and John understood. And as Christ would come into the scribes and the Pharisees, these words must have rung in Peter's ears. You must be careful to do everything the Pharisees say, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Not so for those who are in the church. Ananias and Sapphira. To the Pharisees, he said, they tie up heavy burdensome loads and lay them upon men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They're not servants. To the Sadducees, who tried to trick him with that resurrection. Who's going to be married in the resurrection? Yeah, right, Jesus, we got you here. Jesus looked at him and says, you are wrong. You are in error. You do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Wow, how strong Jesus is. But regarding the resurrection, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard Jesus responding to, they were just astonished. But when the Sadducees heard Jesus, they were silenced. And so when the Pharisees heard that Jesus gave it to the Sadducees, the Pharisees came right back and said, we're going to get him. And so they came out, and while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked the Pharisees, okay, you want to play this game? I'll play the game. Who do you think, what do you think about Christ? Uh, Whose son is he? He's a son of David. Well, if that's true, why does David call him Lord? And if he's Lord, 
and he and I'm the son of David, you should be following what David. You see, Jesus was just engaging in their arguments. You couldn't win. And so what happened was, after Jesus put the Pharisees in the place, no one dare answer him a word, nor did anyone from that day on ask him another question from the Pharisees. You see, Jesus knows how to treat threatened leaders. And therefore, when it came to the point where they attacked Jesus, when they hurled their insults at him, Jesus did not retaliate. Strong. When he suffered, he made no threats. Get that. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that's the part that Peter and John had to learn, as well as all of us do. When threatened leaders threaten us, we entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. And so... uh, Why? Because he himself bore our sins. He knows what injustice is. And therefore, in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And that kingdom mention of righteousness comes up over and over again in the Old, in the Old Testament and the New Testament and becomes the mark of the kingdom. And if you seek the kingdom of God first, then you seek also not just the experience of his kingdom, you seek the righteousness of his kingdom. And there's a transformation in society, in organizations, but personally in your heart because you see that God is everything you need and everything you need he's going to add to you if you do what's right and you follow him. And that's what Proverbs says, that if we understand and discern what's right, we have wisdom. And wisdom responds, uh, reposes in the heart of the discerning. Even among the fools, wisdom will be made known by her fruits. You will see wisdom and because the wisdom has the power of the Holy Spirit, giving that security in Christ. But if Christ Jesus isn't your security, you have no security. If Christ Jesus isn't your security, you're going to put your trust in man-made, limited, fallen systems. But if Christ is your security, you walk as secure as Christ is secure. And therefore, righteousness will exalt you, will honor you. It will exalt a nation. And where unrighteousness runs rampant, that people are condemned. That's what Proverbs says. And therefore, go stand and tell them about this word of life. And that word of life is the abiding life of Christ, the salvation that's offered in Christ. By grace we stand. By grace, God is for us. By grace, Jesus is with us. And by grace, the Holy Spirit is in us. We can overcome because we are a people who are bearing the fruit of the secure God. You know, God has all power and coerces no one. Jesus is so secure. He doesn't have to worry about winning an argument. And yet, in Christ, in Christ alone, that's our security. That's where our faith is. And therefore, I want you to know this. There are two things that the Lord wants you to know that he will do for you. He will secure your soul because he came to die on a cross 
And that means God is so committed to you that you are loved with a love that you didn't earn and therefore can never lose. It's not based on your performance. It's based on the God who's so secure and strong. And so is his love. Two, God wants your life to be significant, meaningful, powerful, without being threatened, challenged. But your security is you matter to him. You matter to him. And he makes your life meaningful in him. And therefore, that's why David would say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold, the defense of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Christian, you are freed, you are freed from being a people pleaser. You are freed from being a system conformist. If Christ is your security and you abide in Christ, you are really free and you're really secure. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. And my salvation comes from him. Thus, truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress and I will never be shaken. That's what the early church was learning. That this group of people would no longer be tied to the rule-bound Pharisees or the cynical Sadducees or people looking for a spiritual experience. They were tied to Christ and Christ alone. That's for you. That's for me. He is our rock. He is our security. Let's pray. Father, we all know, we all know that you are everything we need. We all know that once we are in your hands, no one is able to snatch us out of your hands. And therefore, as your people, we rest as the apostles did and say, we must obey you rather than men. Father, turn our hearts to you. Would you anchor our faith in the grace and salvation that's in Christ alone? And we thank you, Jesus, for sending us the Holy Spirit to help us enjoy that relationship of abiding in you. Now, Father, would you build your church as we continue to get into this word. Make us secure as our minds are stayed upon thee. We pray in Jesus' name for your, for your glory and our growth. Amen. Amen.